This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto. Enjoy today's show. Professor, it's truly a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, you're a truly distinguished cryptographer, mathematician, computer scientist, a professor at MIT, a founder of Algorand and co-creator, or I guess co-discoverer perhaps is the better way of phrasing it, of Zero Knowledge Proofs. Welcome to Real Vision. Thank you very much. Good morning, Ash, to you and uh, to your audience. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, and I know this is going to embarrass you a little bit, uh, but for uh, our friends who are on the finance and economics side, I want to tell a little bit about your background. Uh, you're a National Academy of Sciences and National Academy of Engineering member, a winner of the Godel Prize, the RSA Award for Excellence in Mathematics, and you've uh, won the Turing Prize, often referred to as the Nobel Prize of Computing, uh, with Professor Shafiq Goldwasser, a truly distinguished academic career in addition to the things we're going to talk about here today. You are too kind. <laughs> so, Professor, let's talk a little bit about your journey into the Bitcoin space, which I think is one of the most interesting stories. You've spoken about how you succumbed to Bitcoin uh, and how you locked yourself in your office for a few months with your MIT colleague, uh, Professor Nikolai Zeldowich, uh, thinking, this is just too good to be true. This Bitcoin algorithm, too good to be true. We're going to try to break it. Well, um, yes. So first of all, um, I was uh, in my ivory tower um, mood, right? So um, I try not to be distracted by too many things. But at this point, the Bitcoin popped up here and there. Everybody was talking about. So finally, I succumbed, as you said, and asked my student, "Okay, explain to me Bitcoin." And I was um, immediately two things struck to my mind. First, I loved the vision, the idea, the whole thing. It really was fascinating. But the second thing is it looks a bit too uh, complicated, the machine. Maybe not uh, as elegant a solution as possible. So as you said, uh, I locked myself up and said, well, criticizing is easy. Doing things is always harder. What I would do? And so... It takes me a few months, and then uh, finally I re-emerged with an initial design. And then where I, I started discussing with Nikolai, and then Nikolai says, you know, well, this is all theory. Do you mind if we test it? Now, uh, Nikolai is um, <laughs> the best <laughs> system engineer that you can imagine. And uh, I said, why, why should I mind it? No, let's test it. So we rented some uh, 1,000 servers, a big service from Amazon to simulate all kinds of traffic. And um, after a while, my oh my, somehow the experiment seemed to confirm the theory. Mm. So then at that point, it says, oh, you know what? There is a technology, there is an experiment, the technology is tested. Well, how about now we uh, start a company? That was uh, really the, the, the idea. Because I must say, as a cryptographer, I always feel frustrated with how 
late our ideas and innovation come to the marketplace. This time I decided I throw my hat in the arena, whatever happens, happens. I'm uh, I'm going to do it rather than waiting for somebody else to do it. So, and that brings us actually to Algorand, which is, you literally started this at your dining room table. Tell us a little bit about your thought process, how you worked into that. It's a truly novel uh, structure, a truly novel blockchain. Give us a little bit of a background for first, what you saw the need was and why you thought this is something that really needs to exist. Well, I must uh, say that, you know, uh, after I I saw um, the, the design of Bitcoin and already the, uh, the reaction that we discussed before, I also learned about the Buterin uh, blockchain trilemma that uh, states that no blockchain can be simultaneously decentralized, secure, and scalable. And so um, whenever I find something, uh, something is claimed impossible, nothing excites my imagination more than impossibilities. Because I want to share with you and your audience uh, two fundamental truths. One is that uh, there are impossible things in life, which, by the way, is what gives life depth and meaningfulness. But the second thing, which is also good news, is that the impossible things are much fewer than we think they are. Okay, so I thought that uh, let's see what is so hard about it, and um, and somehow if I found a um, perfect uh, setting for uh, all my recent studies, I uh, I'm a cryptographer in the, indeed. I spend a you know, um, many years doing that. My first uh, PhD thesis that I granted was uh, in distributed computation and Byzantine agreement. And um, my latest team here, as I was conducting research on uh, mechanism design, which is a branch of economics that deals with mechanics and the architecture of incentives. Professor, if you wouldn't mind, if you could tell the audience, for people who don't know what the formal academic definition of Byzantine fault tolerance is and why that's so important uh, in these distributed cryptographic systems. Terrific. You know, what the, perhaps uh, is um, um, right now, what is uh, very easy is uh, to spread communication, right? So we live through this revolution that all of a sudden, you know, um, not only our friends, we can reach everybody um, with a, a viral message. But there is only one problem. When I receive a message, I have no idea if you receive it too. So communication and messaging is easy. Common knowledge to realize what we really, both you know, I know that you know, and you know that I know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that common knowledge is very actually very hard. So Byzantine agreement is essentially a communication protocol. A bunch of people have uh, some values in their head, say is raining or is snowing or, uh, or whatever the value is, or a numerical value. And what do we want to do is that we talk, 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 and at the end of a conversation, two properties are uh, um, uh, occurred. One, everybody agrees, on the same value. And by the way, if just in case everybody started with the same value, not only we agree on a common value, but we agree on the very value that everybody started with, right? So that is essentially, um, um, it takes a while to convince ourselves that that's what uh, we need. By the way, in blockchain, it's very, it's very important to know what the next block really is to achieve agreement on what the next block is. And in Bitcoin, as a very 
um, uh, ad hoc mechanism to reach a, a, a agreement on a common block. And in Algorand, instead, we do it in a totally different way. We reach a Byzantine agreement on the block, and therefore our chain never forks, because of the way essentially Bitcoin works is that I propose a block. If you agree on my block, then you append your block to mine. Somebody else will append a block to yours, it's voting. I agree on, on Hash's block. And by the way, I also agree on Silvio's block and all the blocks that precedes. So after you see that a block has been agreed to, voted upon a voter conference by more and more block, it becomes more and more and more probable that this is actually, this block is here to stay and we are not going to change our mind. In other words, we have agreed on it. In Algorand, we take a different approach. We agree by doing a Byzantine agreement protocol on each block and therefore we never change our mind and our chain never forks. And so what the Byzantine agreement is the strongest notion of agreement in presence of bad people. And what can these bad people do? They can tell you one thing and me something else altogether. So they can lie, they can cheat, they can do anything. But if somehow the majority of the participants are honest, then, then there is uh, all the good people at the end of the conversation, they agree on a single block, on a single value. And, uh, and, uh, and, and that is really a very, very robust property. Exactly what was needed in uh, in uh, in uh, in, um, in blockchain, unfortunately, Byzantine agreement, which was a notion proposal in the 1970s, it was also very robust, but very slow to achieve. So, so much so, defines law: the maximum number of any practical application requiring Byzantine agreement allowed 12 participants. 12, you know, in a internet protocol with possibly billions of participants, it doesn't even make sense. So we have to reinvent at Algorand a totally new approach to a Byzantine agreement that guarantees on the nose the original definition and is so fast that we can achieve it actually in, in, a, in a second or two, even though there are a fantastic number of participants. Yeah, and that's what's so fascinating. One of the things that we try to do here at Real Vision is to translate uh, the computer science into the practical real-world applications. Uh, for people who have been following uh, Bitcoin, for example, uh, they know that uh, very often you have to wait for two or three block confirmations to be certain that you have transaction finality. Uh, but what's so interesting about this settlement finality, transaction finality, the idea being that you know with a very high degree of certainty that the transaction isn't going to change in the future. And Algorand, the algorithm, uh, is designed to do this with a single block. Yes, because, because once a, a payment made to you appears in the new block, you say, oh, EP, finally I've been paid. Well, not quite, because if the chain can fork, and uh, it may be that the block in which you're what happens when the chain forks, the shorter branch of the chain eventually dies, and possibly your block may disappear with it. So before considering yourself paid, mm. don't just, uh, you don't want to see your payment made to you appear in the latest block. You want to make sure that a second, a third, a tenth block are added to your block so that it becomes more and more probable that 
the block in which it is written, you have been paid, is going to stay in the chain forever. In Algorand, essentially, as soon as a block appears, you have a guarantee that it's going to stay on chain forever. So you can ship the goods right away as soon as you get paid in Algorand. In, uh, the, the moment in which a payment made to you in Algorand appears, you can ship the goods you have been paid. Yeah. So, Professor, I'm a, a former English major, so you're going to have to bear with me uh, with my rather limited math skills. Uh, but I was watching an academic lecture of yours uh, last night where you were talking about uh, the forking infrequency. Uh, and I heard you reference something like when you well, someone, I believe, asked uh, or, or you were answering the question yourself, how infrequent is infrequent? Uh, and you said <laughs> 10 to the minus 18, which is the number of seconds that have elapsed since the beginning of the universe. Do I have that about right? You have it right. So when uh, when uh, I say uh, colloquially, essentially in Algorand uh, there are no forks, this is a little bit of a stretch of the truth. There is a, a, a small probability that an Algorand can fork, um, and, but this probability, I decided when we wanted, we were trying to figure out uh, this is decision that I made unilaterally. How small this should be this probability? I said hey, we have to convince that this is small enough. I decided I have an idea. 10 to the minus 18. So one divided 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, uh, 18 times. And he says, what is magic about this number? It, as you said, is the number of, of seconds from Big Bang until now. <laughs> In other words, if uh, we produce one block a second, which is a very good clip, it's going to take the age of the universe before we can see a fork in algorithm. And at that point, I decided maybe this is good enough, at least for me, and certainly possibly for my a few descent, a few generations after that. A pretty long time scale. It's a pretty long time. Uh, you know, one of the other things that's interesting, obviously, Bitcoin is the protocol that most people are familiar with and uh, and sort of the reference that I use for thinking about how to compare things. Uh, so one of the interesting things is this, uh, the, the notion of consensus and how it's achieved. Uh, many of us know it's interesting now we live in a world where uh, finance uh, folks are talking about uh, computer science terms and you it's not uncommon to hear a finance person say, oh, that's a that's a proof of work algorithm. I know that. Uh, but you use a, a kind of proof of stake algorithm uh, that is interesting and novel and something that you developed. Can you talk a little bit about that consensus mechanism? Yeah. So by the way, I love proof of work. It's such an original idea, right? So um, um, uh, let me boil it down to what is the, the, the difficulty in any blockchain. Blockchain wants to have a, a few main properties. One is that, you know, the common knowledge, what I, I read is the same with what you read and the same that everybody else reads. What is written cannot be changed retroactively by anybody, cannot be altered. And, um, and that is one, one part. And, but uh, the other, the difficulty is not in making sure that you cannot manipulate the order of the block or the content of the block. The difficulty is, seems almost a political one, who chooses the next block? Because if I choose the next block, I would have more power than any absolute monarch that ever existed because I would have the power to see these transactions are the transactions the entire world should see and these other transactions should never see the light of day. Okay, who chooses the next block? Well, it's not going to be me, it's not going to be you. Nakamoto, Mr. or Mrs. Nakamoto, had this great idea. I said, well, 
we create a computational puzzle, very hard puzzle, and the first one to find the solution has the right to append the next block on behalf of us, of all of us. So one day I may solve the puzzle first, one day I may solve you first. That is proof of work. It's a great idea, but uh, does, great doesn't mean that it's perfect. Because what happens is that the, the difficulty of a riddle is such that it becomes more and more costly to solve a riddle. It requires buying thousands and thousands of supercomputers to have a chance to solve a riddle. And when things become so expensive, fewer and fewer people can, get, um, um, can, make, can afford these expenses, and therefore the system becomes more and more centralized. So, as a, and besides, we waste a tremendous amount of energy that in this day and age is not a cool thing to do. So the next idea was a delegated proof of stake, which uh, essentially means the following. We choose 21 people and we put them in charge to choose the next block on behalf of all of us, hoping that these 21 people are honest for the foreseeable future. And if you think about it, 21 is better than one, but it's not decentralized to any real sense, right? You know, just imagine when uh, um, in France there was a big revolution because uh, the pop the pop there were millions of disempowered people and hundreds of thousands of nobles, and they consider this too centralized. 21 is very centralized, if you ask me. So what uh, instead that we do, if you look at all these uh, uh, at all these uh, uh, prior concepts, uh, they have uh, a very peculiar logic. Essentially means that the whole economy is secure if the majority of a small piece of economy are honest. What does this mean? That's something puzzling. It is puzzling. Because when you put the entire economy at the mercy of a very small part, you are asking for trouble. If not now, in the foreseeable future. What is the small part of the economy that must be honest for Bitcoin to work? The miners. Now you tell me, in the global GDP, the GDP of the world, what fraction of the global GDP is represented by the miners? You cannot even see it with a naked eye, not even with a magnifying glass. You need really an electronic microscope. In delegated proof of stake, the, uh, the, the, the people that require to be honest are the 21 delegates. Again, they disappear in the global GDP. So what do we do in algorithm? Essentially, is the following. is that the economy is represented by tokens, 10 billion tokens. And if the majority of these 10 billion tokens are in honest ends, the system is secure. Put it in another way. Who can somehow um, really destroy algorithm? You need that the, the majority of the token collude together to destroy the very economy of which they own the majority of. And to me, that is way preferable and is unlikely, it's way preferable to put all the economy destiny to just a small piece of economy, essentially the majority of the economy is the one responsible for keeping the old system secure, not no, a small part. That's what we call pure proof of stake, 
and is really the somehow the, the algorithm approach to security in blockchain. Yeah. I find this absolutely fascinating uh, on the one hand, because it's so different uh, from the Bitcoin protocol. The idea of eliminating miners entirely from the system is something uh, that I think people who are relatively new, uh, who are thinking only in terms of Bitcoin, probably takes them some time to get their head around. But the sort of the elegance of this system, I think, is also just intriguing. So the idea is if you have a billion uh, people out there uh, who are members of the network uh, and you divide by a million, you get a thousand people that you get randomly elected. And then they, if you can truly make these samples randoms, can vote and be representative of the system. It's a fascinating concept. Thank you. <laughs> but I believe actually in the power of randomness. And I think that you know, they, um, this notion of um, uh, randomness is really very powerful because indeed, if you have a billion people, and if, if you want to select a thousand of random, and they are, those are the ones responsible for choosing the next block, and then it, and the one the block after different 1,000 people randomly selected, you think you're doing quite well. But of course, the question of it, you know, your audience immediately start, start um, thinking ahead is to say, well, a thousand people randomly selected by whom? Right? So that is uh, the idea. And um, what is at the at the basis of Algorand is a cryptographically fair lottery, which means it's a lottery that you essentially are guaranteed that not me, not you, not even a, an entire nation, very powerful and full of supercomputers can actually change the probability uh, uh, of selecting somebody else. That is really the power of uh, cryptographic randomness. And, and, then, and part, the technical uh, tool that we use is, um, is so-called um, uh, verifiable random function. That is, uh, I'm, uh, I was a co-author with uh, two very good friends, you know, uh, some 20 years ago. And I remember, you may be surprised, that uh, we didn't have an application for this verifiable random function back then. <laughs> but we wrote in the paper, we believe this technology will someday be, be useful. <laughs> so somehow I've been very... Uh, very happy to report that, in fact, as found I use and is really one of the pillars of the uh, Algorand uh, blockchain. Yeah, and here we are with that technology being uh, yes. relevant. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So but it's, it's, it's really interesting, I think, for people who aren't mathematicians uh, to understand what randomness truly means, to understand the size and the scale of the address spaces uh, that you look at and draw random numbers from. So that is actually, yes, uh, um, uh, that is really fascinating. My uh, PhD thesis was uh, uh, about you know, pseudo-random number generation. And it was a, a, a new approach in which uh, uh, can you generate randomness out of nothing? Mm, no, because nothing is, uh, gene 
you can come out to nothing. You can come out evoke an existence from nothing. But what you could, what it turns out, what you could do, you can expand randomness. So if you, for instance, take 300 bits truly random, say by coin tosses, by a very expensive to uh, quantum system, you get, give me 300 bits. And then these 300 bits, if you keep them secret, mm. you can expand them 300 million bits, 300 trillion bits, 300 quadrillion bits, as much as you want, in such a way that if you know the, all the bits produced so far and you want to bet what the next bit is, not knowing the initial 300 bits, but knowing the algorithm that expands them, know all the bits produced so far, what is the next bit better than, say, 50.001? The time it takes to predict the next bit with an accuracy better than a half plus 001 is essentially the time uh, of the universe. Right. And that is very strange because it's a little bit, you know, strange. But we must understand that uh, the number of possibility of initial bit, 300 bit bits is, of course, Three, two to the power of 300. Mm. And you know, this number is essentially the number of elementary particles in the entire universe. Right. So not all, not the molecules in the universe, not the atoms in the universe, not the electrons in the universe, but any, any neutrinos, electrons, protons, any, any particle you want, all of them are less than two to the 300. So in other words, to guess the initial seed, is like to say, I thought of an elementary particle in the universe. Which one did I choose? Okay, go to this galaxy. Yes, I go to this galaxy. Uh, go to this uh, sun. Go to the third planet of the sun. There is um, over there, I mean, uh, uh, some grass, a piece of grass. The third molecule on the left, third electron on the right. Did you think of that? No. Try again. <laughs> you can see with the scale. So it is amazing. Um, it is really a discovery um, uh, of uh, complexity theory, one of the deep discoveries of complexity theory, that you can actually expand randomness. If you're given very little of it, you can expand it at will in a very, very fast using you know, um, uh, computers, so you can speed up bits as fast as you can. And, uh, and these bits are de facto random bits because you are de facto um, unpredictable in any humanly conceivable time of computation. Yeah, this is just truly intriguing. And and for a non-mathematician like myself, it's difficult to conceive of. But just to give people some idea, and tell me if I get this wrong, Professor, but to understand that this is really all about exponential functions. If I you know guess uh, a coin flip, I have a 50-50 chance of getting it right. If you flip that coin uh, 10 times, the odds of me getting all 10 right uh, go to about 1 in a 1,000. But if you flip it 20 times, they go to 1 in a million. So it's this extraordinary idea that with a finite number of different choices, as simple as a coin flip, you can generate this massive amount of randomness, massive amount of unpredictability. Flipping a coin 300 times is something most of us could do in an hour. And okay. yet you generate this potential address space the size of all of the elementary particles in the universe. It's it's a little bit mind-blowing. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, I'm not saying... Uh, if 
is not for you. I'm, I'm saying uh, the first time that I heard this, I had to pause and say, wow, this is exponential function. I knew intuitively that it goes very fast, of course, right? And uh, But once you actually translated, when just a 300, and I, and I had 300 coin process, and the possible outcomes are as many as the, is, uh, the, the elementary particle in the universe is mind-boggling. Whether you are a scientist who do this all the time or not, is uh, the first time you realize this is a aha moment for everybody. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Uh, just absolutely extraordinary. So to get back to so a little bit more of the of the practical applications here and to think about this, and that's what we try to do to bridge the, the theoretical and the practical. Uh, so different mechanism than is used in, for example, Ethereum, uh, there's no confiscation uh, on the algorithm, algorithm protocol. Tell us a little bit about how that works. Yes, so when uh, you put uh, essentially in... Uh, Different systems are built in different ways. So one way to say is the following. You have a, a chance of uh, doing something bad, but I'm going to punish you if you do something bad. That is a way to try to prevent uh, that something bad happens, right? I mean, that is uh, um, 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 uh, some kind of a design. And um, I don't find this design convincing. Let me tell you why. Because I believe that the blockchain will... Uh, a blockchain that really works due to the transparency, the security, the decentralization, the trust that it generates is going to transform finance. And a, 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 a blockchain should have under management essentially trillions of dollars. When the stakes are so high, how much can you punish somebody? So essentially you say, well, if you want to be a block producer or a verifier of our system, you must post a large bond. Okay, I post a large bond. Is a million enough? Well, a million is good, but uh, I would appreciate a million. Okay, I post a million. Well, you know, I appreciate even better if you post 100 million. Okay, I post 100 million. <laughs> but you see where I'm going. If all of a sudden I have a responsibility for trillions of dollars, and uh, if I lie or if I misbehave, what I my risk is $100 million, Wow, that's an opportunity for really bad guys with deep pockets to right. buy me $200 million. Yeah, Silvio, I know that you're going to lose your bond of $100 million. <laughs> here is $100 million to make you whole. By the way, here is another $100 million to make you my friend now. Now that you are my friend, do you mind <laughs> generating for me a couple of billion dollars out of nothing? Okay, so I really believe that the the best way is to somehow to prevent something bad to happen with making it impossible to happen so without punishing anybody. Isn't this a better system? And I think that that's essentially the, the, uh, the route that we take. Yeah, this also an interesting concept, the idea that uh, when the sums of money at stake are fantastically large, there's simply no amount of bond you can ask someone to post that would not be something that could, in theory, be compensated by a, a state actor, for example. Yes, I agree. And, uh, and I think we should... Uh, um, uh, we see now the convergence that we are seeing that in Algorand are clearly of traditional finance and, uh, and decentralized finance. And uh, we are going to get, you know, 
to very significant assets put on, on chain. And, uh, and, uh, and it's so attractive, it's so fast, it's so secure, the costs are so low. Um, you can actually have a peer-to-peer transaction, a great security. The value of, of the blockchains that are really... Uh, Will um, will make it is going to be stunning, and we must start thinking about security security very seriously, and about the designs that are most adapted to handle these uh, trillions of dollars in value. Yeah. You know, one of the questions as you're speaking about this that I'm thinking of uh, is that we're talking about the theoretical uh, flaws, uh, the theoretical vulnerabilities in a system. But that's very different from the practical vulnerabilities in terms of a systems engineering perspective. So while you we're talking about these enormous numbers, you know, 2 to the 300, 10 to the 90, uh, the practical vulnerabilities uh, may be different. How do you think about making sure the engineering is right uh, to ensure that there aren't sort of uh, fundamental flaws in the system that are a result of human error or improper implementation of a theoretical proof or system? Correct. Let me tell you another um, 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 truth which is unavoidable. So errors, we are humans. Error is bound to be with us, period. We must accept that. However, we should not accept that we remain sleeping or lazy and try to ban it. And uh, speaking of practicality, so I want to make another point. As a cryptographer, right, it used to be that uh, uh, encryption schemes were so bad that it was a bonanza when somebody talked encrypted. Because, wow, now I go to want to hear the conversation, I decrypt the, the end of it, okay? And so, but then what happens is that when encryption becomes very, very hard and mathematically sophisticated as it is now, people went back to opening the doors and looking at your file cabinets or in your trash, right? So a good old-fashioned way before we had the internet, before we had phones even. And um, and so that is actually considered, believe it or not, a, a sign of the success of cryptography, that people have to go back to the old-fashioned breaking in. Well, now the, the protocols that are uh, behind them, um, uh, some blockchains now are so sophisticated that people no longer attack the protocol. We should worry about the people attack the communication network on which the protocol is run. Because a distributed protocol is a software that runs on a, on a communication network, like the internet. So it turns out, for instance, that you have to be careful because if in Bitcoin, say, all the miners are honest, all of them. Okay, so... These are uncorruptible people. So Bitcoin could actually double spend if you somehow control the communication network and you say, isolate, let's make it up. One continent to make it simple. Out of the five populated continent, you isolated one continent for two hours, you can double spend with impunity. So that means that when the math is so good, people go to attack network. It's going to be much easier to cut an underground or even undersea cable than to attack the math. Right. And we have to watch out for that. So yes, and so at Algorand, we have actually security both at the protocol level and at the 
communication network level also. So if somebody has control, total control of the algorithm communication, of the communication network on which algorithm is run, then the most we can do is that to stop the production of block for a while until you restore law and order. But when the blockchain starts again, Algorand starts when we left it with nobody losing money. And that is a condition that we were very careful in enforcing and uh, because we believe it is uh, fundamental. So we had to protect against the protocol errors, we have to protect our protocol attacks, we have to protect against the network attacks, but against the human errors, I must say, it is, uh, that's why the only protection is uh, uh, to have the best team uh, money can buy. That's one protection. To have uh, open source, to enable everybody to inspect you know, our protocols and the way we do things, right? To invite public scrutiny. But, you know, I'm, I, I, I would be like to say <laughs> we have found the solution to abolish uh, human error. That is uh, in our nature and uh, will remain to, uh, with us. Yeah. And in many ways, the open source community is one of the best uh, mechanisms of that that we've ever created. Absolutely. That is, uh, is amazing. We live in a very interesting world and the world is becoming more and more uh, cooperative and open source is really the uh, pinnacle of uh, human cooperation. That's why we believe uh, in uh, open sourcing, you know, all our protocol. There are no black box uh, algorithms in algorithm. Yeah. Uh, we're going to come back a little bit more to Algorand uh, in a few moments, uh, but I want to talk about something else that really kind of blew my mind the first time I heard of it uh, three or four years ago, uh, which is the notion of zero knowledge proofs, uh, which is something that you and your colleagues uh, created, uh, conceived of uh, some 35 years ago. Uh, and it's a, it's a difficult concept to get your head around the idea that you can prove you know something without revealing the thing you know. Yes. So... <laughs> Um yeah, we live in an interesting um, world. The world is uh, different than uh, we thought it was going to be. So we, we thought perhaps for thousands of years, right? So first of all, this notion of a proof didn't change for thousands of years. So the proof, uh, according to Euclid and all, uh, in uh, 500 BC, and the notion of a proof until uh, even actually Turing uh, himself, uh, and um, 2,500 years later was essentially the same. And it's something that you can write down and then you can inspect according to some logical rules to make sure that no errors is, is done. And so somehow what we thought about is to have a, a different type of a proof, like a, a proof like a game. And... Um, and essentially means uh, ah, let me be bothered by writing down the proof it can be too long. And when it's, a proof is too long, even uh, you can actually get tired uh, and uh, ignore and not notice uh, an error. We, we, we play a game. And so in the following spirit, if the theorem is true, the, I have a game simple, a simple game that you and I can play. Uh, can play. And it says, Ash, the theorem is true. And you say, Silvio, frankly, I'm skeptical. Very good. So we play the game. But you know that if the theorem is true, I have a strategy that allows me to win the game all the time, 100% of the time. If instead the theorem is false, you also know that the 
probability that anybody, not me, but even the devil himself, could have to win the game is at most 50% of the time. Okay. You are skeptical? Let's play. The game is very, very short. In a fraction, in a millisecond, we, we can decide who wins or loses. I win. I win. I win. I win. I win. Using your example 300 times in a row. Then you have to draw your conclusion. Either the theorem is false, and I was so lucky to predict essentially 300 coin tosses in a row, or I should have lost half of, half of them at least. So I should, you should have won at least half of the time. So then that is uh, somehow the, this notion of a proof, interactive proof. And once you have this notion of an interactive proof, when you start, you know, waking sleeping giants, the world looks different because once the proof, rather than being a static object that you inspect from left to right, becomes a game, then strange property pop up. And one of these properties that have a fundamental intuition, that verification and knowledge are one and the same, is no longer true. You, you can actually separate them and you can verify that something is true without having the idea of why that is. Mm. And if you tell me that I have two minutes, I want to give you an example of this, but uh, is uh, uh, it will take two minutes. Please, please. All right. So, so imagine that you have, uh, I'm going to give you an example in which proving is very, very slow. I mean, it can be done in a day, but you know, a day is a long time. But it's the simplest way to understand what is, is going on. So everybody knows a map, right? I've seen, um, especially of cities and roads, right? So... Assume you have a thousand city in a country with a thousand city and some 10,000 roads who join these cities. Mathematically, this map is called a graph. The cities are called nodes, the, the roads are called edges. Because mathematicians want to give different names to, to look special. But actually, city and roads make it. It turns out that um, some maps can be colored with three colors, say the patriotic colors, red, blue, and white. In such a way, I want to color the city, red, blue, and white, in such a way, no road joins two cities with the same colors. Some maps can be colored with three colors, and some maps they cannot. Right? If you take, for instance, five cities, and all the possible roads among them, then uh, you say, if only three colors to go to the city, you are, you, there ought to be exist one road that joins two cities. But if you see a thousand cities, you think 10,000 roads, can it be color? Yes or no? You don't know. And that actually is a problem, believe it or not, that is so difficult that it's going to take, you know, man, uh, thousands of years of computation if the map is, uh, or, or even at the age of the universe, if the map is large enough and the number of roads is large enough. Okay. So therefore you say, okay, this is non-trivial theorem. I give you a map of thousand nodes. I can write it down on a table. And uh, all the nodes are there, and I say, you know, Ash, this uh, map can be free colored. Say, Silvio, I don't believe you. Very good. So, could you please, Ash, leave the room? Okay, you leave the room. What do I do? I color properly the map red, Toronto, uh, uh, blue, Washington, 
Boston will make it, you know, uh, white. White also New York, because there is no road directly from Boston to, um, to New York. And then say, and better what I do. I put a paper plate, a mini paper plate, so to hide the colors. And I say, Ash, come in. Underneath these paper plates, there is a free coloring of a graph. He says, how do I know? Well, point to any road you want, and I will lift the paper plates. You point to a road, okay? I like to see, you see red, blue, different colors. You say, you believe me? Say, no, I don't believe you. That's one road. I had to inspect all 10,000 roads. Just a second. Go out again, please, Ash, and let me continue. What do I do now? First, I permute at random the colors. So for instance, what used to be red, I make it blue. What used to be blue, I make it red, and white stays the same. I randomize the colors, I put the paper plate, and when I say, Ash, come again, you point to a road, I lift it, different colors, you say, Silvio, so far so good, but it's only two trials. Okay, now let's start the reasoning about the best process. First, it's clear that it takes a, a day to do, to do this, say, a few thousand times. But as this proof has a very special property. Is a zero-knowledge proof. Why? Because assume that the map is not free colored. Then, no matter how I color it, there ought to be at least one road between two cities of the same colors. Or there is another color green that shouldn't be there. <laughs> okay. So, you have a chance, one in 10,000, to pick that one which is badly colored at that point in time, and, and you catch it. So if you do this 10,000 times, you have actually pretty much, even if there is only one that is badly colored, to find it. If you do it a million times, then you have a very good probability to catch it. Okay, so then it's a proof. You don't, if for a million times you come in, get out, come in, get out, you get tired, get, your legs ache, Whatever, but at the end, you're convinced, you know, you know, most probably it is free color. The question now is, you got convinced that the theorem is true. Do you know the coloring? Let's see, any time that you come in the room, what happens? You point to a, road, to a road of your choice. I lift the plate, and underneath, you find two different colors. But not only two different colors, two different random colors, because before you enter, whatever was blue, I make it white, whatever white, I make it blue, and I randomize. So you see, you point to a road, now that you're convinced that the theorem is true, say, well, did I learn anything? No, why didn't I learn anything else that the free colorability of the map? Because you can simulate this experiment yourself. You can pretend to point at an edge, and see blue and red. You point at another edge at another time and you see two random colors, white and blue. Can you deduce from this what the coloring is? No. That, that essentially is, in essence, how you can allow to verify in a very slow way in this example without actually learning, except that the, the statement is true, but not why. Right. And that it is a very strange theorem that that is, does not hold only for maps, but any mathematical proofs whatsoever can actually prove in zero knowledge. 
And that is one of the other, essentially, another information society was one of the surprises that we got that uh, uh, in studying um, modern complexity theory, one of the gifts of complexity theory is to really realize that the proofs are different than whatever we thought they were or can be done in very different ways. And very fundamental intuition, like uh, having a proof in zero knowledge, uh, is also possible. Yeah, it's extraordinary that this idea that you could separate verifiability from the knowledge itself uh, was something that didn't exist before the 1980s. This isn't something that's reliant on computational <laughs> power. This is a theoretical proof that you and your colleagues uh, generated that for thousands of years was unknown to mathematicians. Yes, but uh, but you know there are certain times in which uh, people usually don't ask the question because society was different, right? So um, in some sense, um, before we really had the computers, all the um, cryptography was much more an art than a science. Hmm. But now with the advent of uh, computers, people say, hey, we better shape up and uh, bring this uh, uh, cryptography to the next level. And um, and once we started doing this uh, with my colleague Shafi that you mentioned before, uh, okay, we start uh, advancing uh, cryptography to a point, but then we found a stumbling block. And to say, what we, you want to do is that uh, you want somehow to found bound the knowledge that you have in an interaction. So let me tell you why. So anytime uh, uh, that I want to authenticate myself, I used to have a secret key, a secret number that is my unique knowledge, right? So you give me a challenge, I use my secret key, my secret number to respond to your challenge. And we do this over and over again. Now, could I answer your, your challenge without my secret key? No. But if I am to use my secret key to answer your challenge, do I have a guarantee that my secret key is not going to leak, drip, drip, drip until you actually learn it? Of course, you know, in any cryptographic system, the challenge is not so stupid that say, oh, here is my secret key. But <laughs> perhaps it gives a, a distorted image. Think about a, a shadow projected on a, on a wall of my secret key. And see the shadow from one, under one light, see the shadow under another light. Sooner or later, you can reconstruct what the key looks like. So we figured it out. We needed to be sure that continual usage of the same secret key does not betrays the key itself. And he says, how do we do that? Well, we had to have this zero knowledge. We, did, we didn't need the name. Actually, we invented the concept and the protocol and we gave the name later. <laughs> okay. And um, I believe actually I suggested the name. Say, hey, if you want a name that says it all, call it zero knowledge proof and you're done because that's what it is. Okay. Shafi agreed we call them that way. <laughs> but, but you see, now we had the reason. And very often you say, why this stuff was invented in this age and not 100 years before, because they didn't have a reason. They didn't have this reason of bounding knowledge. What is the point of bounding knowledge? Well, you want to disseminate usually knowledge as fast as you can as a, and, and as much as you can. But when you are in cryptography, then the opposite is true. And when do you have cryptography? When you have good enough computers that cryptography becomes possible, and we had the computers in all my, essentially when I was a graduate student, my first computer, I must tell you, were time-shared 
I tag someone key, and a few seconds later, a character appeared on the screen, that type of thing, right? <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but they got better, and, uh, and cryptography caught up. So in some sense, you know, um, certain things that can be explained uh, to have a reason because of the, uh, the, the society changes around us, and uh, the scientists, the artists, and um, everybody live in the society they live in, and, uh, um, and they want to express the different things uh, uh, in the historical moments in which they live. Yeah, and I imagine that applies to a lot of these concepts that are inherent in this system. Uh, uh, Trapdoor functions, zero knowledge proofs, uh, asymmetric uh, public key cryptography, all of these things that why would you have a theoretical use for something that wasn't pragmatically implementable? Well, I must say that uh, what is true about humanity is that uh, we are never satisfied and uh, <laughs> scientists ought to be optimists. So very often you develop a a science which is ahead of the technology. Right. And that very, uh, very often uh, occurs. And, um, and so somehow um, and is a little bit of a mystery. Uh, the, so somehow you want to do the theory in the belief that, so I always work on things that I intuitively think are going to be applicable hmm. one day. Interesting. And uh, so it is a guess, it's a gut feeling. I don't have, I cannot prove that there is going to be applicable, but this uh, happened to be the case, right? Like in this uh, Byzantine agreement, my, let's say I granted a PhD to a fantastic student of mine, um, um, uh, uh, Paul Feldman, now Pesek Feldman, Feldman, great student, and actually was on the Byzantine agreement, on a new way to do it, but it was in some sense the foundation of what I'm doing now but uh, with uh, uh, another uh, trick. And uh, because I felt that this notion of hmm. head legs, right? And, and very often you you have as a theoretician, you have to choose, uh, at least I don't give a recipe to anybody, but my style, let's put it this way, is to choose the problems that are potentially applicable. Hmm. And if there is something good, people will actually apply later on. And that is... Uh, is a beta, and that beta was uh, actually turned out to be true. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how many uh, you know applications of theoretical mathematics have been applied to particle physics and string theory uh, in the last twenty-five years, often by your colleagues at MIT. Yeah, yeah, very true, and. Um, so um, I must tell you one thing about that. mathematics. Uh, it does look magic. So uh, and certainly the fact that uh, uh, somehow um, uh, Galileo already a few centuries back uh, said that physics obeys the logic of mathematics was you know something uh, up totally new at the time, because they say, of course, there is a mathematics, it's a human thing, you know, it stays in our brain, and what does it do with nature? Nothing. But they say, actually, <laughs> the fact that physical laws obey this mathematical, go uh, according to mathematics, that was uh, really a deep discovery. But even at a more fundamental level, when I was... Uh, uh, I want to say it's objective because not everybody loved it, you know, when you start doing uh, uh, Euclidean geometry, right? So there is uh, one of the early theorems you find is uh, the, uh, 
the first criterion of equivalence of, uh, of two triangles, and uh, you say two triangles which had two sides and the angle in between equal are equal. And you go for a proof, write uh, that, and, and you finally realize it. And I remember when I was, uh, I grasped the proof and I really understood and says, I said, this is amazing because I am here with two triangles. I measure two sides. I measure one angle in between. Did I measure the other two angles and the other side? Not at all. I don't need to because mathematics will tell me that they are equal. I said, wow, <laughs> why? You know, I mean, in some sense, I really remember I was, you know, very uh, disturbed and fascinated by the idea that there was something which has something to do pure logic. You can actually make assertion about reality in the physical world out there is, uh, is really, it's really amazing. When, you know, when you become, you do it, uh, become a professional, yeah, professional becomes disenchanted. But if you manage to keep the original spirit when you've heard for the first time, is 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 actually nice because uh, it really sounded you know mystical. And uh, in some sense, if you remain uh, young in spirit, uh, it is mystical. Marvelous, marvelous. The unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to bring it to something pragmatic, we've talked about this. We've talked about zero knowledge proofs uh, in the abstract and the theoretical, but this is something that has some real significant pragmatic practical applications in the real world. Can you talk a little bit about how zero knowledge proofs are being used today? Very good. I can give you some very technical ways in which actually is uh, is important. But let me give you one thing that is really important and um, uh, and they, they resonates right away with everybody else. So somehow is this is zero-knowledge proofs are the perfect password. Right? Mm-hmm. Password is thousands of years old uh, uh, technology. You say you want to enter a castle as a knight, say, I need the password. And, uh, okay, open sesame, okay, your heart is true, come in. Okay, let us see. The type of password had the disadvantage that if an enemy was hiding in the moat of the castle and he was listening open sesame, okay, he put himself in an armor, he arrived, and you say, password, open sesame, he got in too. So you want that a password cannot be be learned just by people because you whisper it. So that is, of course, is one point. But there are also additional points that you want. You don't want to have the verifier of the password, nor the password either. So if you are not too different, if you are, the two of us are not too different, or at least if you have as bad memory as I have, let's put it this way, I should not make a... What do I do? Once I took enough time to memorize the same password, I tend to use it again. Okay, so what can happen? I give my password to MIT to say, whoever has this password, right? Let them have access to my file. Let them do this and this, very good. But if I go to Bank of America and I use the same password, somehow some MIT IT person can go to Bank of America and say, you know, uh, good morning, I'm uh, Silvio Micali. Here is the password. Can I have access to the bank account? Okay. 
so that is very dangerous. So the notion of a password used to be that you have one verifier and I share the same password, and that's what enables us. But in the purer sense, if you really want to have the highest sense, the best way to identify yourself is through a zero-knowledge proof. Right. Why? Because I'm going to say, um, say this mathematical statement, I make it at random so that I know the solution to it. And so I say, whoever proves this theorem to you is me letting me access to the file. I take the same theorem and I use it for my bank account. Whoever proves this theorem to you that uh, um, I give him access to my bank account. I have no risk now. Why? Because a zero-knowledge proof, as we discussed, is a, is a proof that you know that the theorem is true, but you don't know why. And therefore, in particular, you have not learned how to convince somebody else, because if you don't know why, you cannot repeat the proof to somebody else. The proof will always have a different change, a changing versions. So you don't have to worry about using the same password in this extended sense in different settings. Better yet, if you want to have, you know, uh, you want to go to the office or a, a, a secret uh, vault, and you don't want to uh, to know even the vault of it, you know, how many times you've gone there, but you can actually have it too. So this, uh, this um, is essentially mechanism of uh, zero-knowledge proofs is really gives you the quintessential password system that you ever wanted and, and, and never dare to ask. Mm. I'm so glad you used that parable because when I was first uh, working on trying to understand zero knowledge proofs, I got through like the first sentence of the Wikipedia article uh, about quadratic residue and then I was completely lost. One sentence I made it through. But when I when I started reading the Alibaba's uh, cave parable, I think it's Jean-Jacques Cousteteur, uh, to frame that, it gave me an understanding and a way of thinking about it that made it just much more uh, graspable by me. And, and I think it's such an important thing to do to try and frame this in a way uh, that you can really understand and envision it without needing to be able to do the math. Yes. And uh, by the way, uh, that, uh, believe it or not, uh, comes uh, not necessarily right away. Uh, so only when we know something very, very well, we can explain it in, in, uh, in simple terms. Yeah. So very often, uh, when I'm asking something and, uh, I must have say, apologize. I say, frankly, I don't know the stuff well enough to explain it right now. Give me a few years. I'll be able to find a, a better explanation, a simpler explanation because, yeah. you know, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication or is the, the ultimate um, state of knowledge when uh, um, um, you know something so well that you can transmit it to others, it, right. it, it does take time. And, um, and so therefore, um, it's unfortunate because this slows down, slows us down as humanity in, uh, in making progress because we have to simplify the way we, because I believe that people can understand anything. We are, you know, everybody. But uh, we have not spent enough time to find the sleek explanation that it can be uh, comprehended by, by everybody. Um, but, 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 but I tell you the truth, uh, this uh, is an effort that uh, takes time. In fact, it may take even more time than to find the original proof. 
Yeah, I think that's so true. And it's fascinating. And your uh, MIT colleague, Noam Chomsky, talked about the same thing with regard to linguistics, that the, we are all born with this capacity to understand language and to know when something is grammatical and when it isn't within our own language. Uh, but the ability to describe it analytically, very, very difficult. Yeah, yes, <laughs> exactly. So I said we'd come back to Algorand. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the auction structure, because I think this is really interesting. Uh, and talking about the fairness principles and the way that the uh, protocol uh, was distributed, talk a little bit about that and give people a sense of why it's so important. So the, the idea, right, is a to is a to ever um, uh, essentially um, uh, a lottery to select the the one thousand verifier. That's what you mean, right? And uh, and to say, how does this random selection really occurs? You know, in Algorand actually occurs uh, in a very unorthodox fashion. The the users select themselves based on how many algos they have. So essentially think of it, having one algo, and there are 10 billion of them, allows you to operate a slot machine that whose ladder you can only pull down once and with two possible outcomes, like in a slot machine. Most of the time you don't win such a case, I can say anything I want about the next block. Nobody pays attention to what I say because I didn't win the lottery. But the one time where, when, when I actually I operate my lever and I and I win, I get also a winning ticket, hmm. namely a mathematical proofs that I won my own lottery. And therefore, what I do, I disseminate. On the network, both my winning ticket and my opinion about the block, say up or down. Okay, so the fact that this is a cryptographically fair lottery means that even a national state with huge computational resources cannot alter minimally the probability of my winning. All right, that's good. Okay, so now what do we want here? We want to have the system that is scalable. Okay. How long does it take to lower the lever to play the slot machine? One microsecond. And by the way, it's not one microsecond per token that you have, but it's one microsecond whether you own one token or a billion token. Okay. That is pretty fast. Okay. To win or not to win, you've decided in a microsecond of computation. But then if I win, what I have to do? Well, you have to distribute over the network, propagate over the network, a short winning ticket and an opinion about the block. Can I do that? Of course you can. Rather than two short messages, you can distribute immediately. So that is them scalable. So now, is this distributed? Well, that is distributed with a granularity of one in 10 billion because every token has the same ability, the same probability of winning the lottery than anybody else. And you can participate in one microsecond independent of how many tokens you have. 
that is really distributed. You empower everybody who wants to participate to participate. Now the other question is that scalable, yes. Distributed, yes. Is it secure? Well, first of all, one side we just mentioned that is very hard, but I, I, I can alter the probability of winning. But if I am a very powerful guy, I don't need to win. I only need to corrupt the winners. So right. I'm going to say, well, I understand that this cryptography, I, I'm powerless. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to corrupt the 1,000 winners. But I have a problem. What is my problem? I don't know, do not know who the winners will be because they are the winners of a random lottery. So should I corrupt you in New York? Should I corrupt this uh, lady in Paris? I have no idea. However, once the 1,000 winners come forward and they say, here is my winning ticket. Here is my opinion about the block. and say, oh, I know now who the winners are. And I have such a tremendous powers that I can corrupt instantaneously any 1,000 people on the planet I want. Zuck, zack, corrupted. But so what? Whatever the winners wanted to say, namely their winning ticket and their opinion about the block, is virally propagated over the network. And I cannot put back what they said back in the bottle no more than our government or anybody could put back in the bottle, say, a message virally propagated by WikiLeaks. So the system is secure because beforehand, I do not know the 1,000 people who are in charge of the next block. And once I know, it's too late to corrupt them. Roughly, that's the idea. So that's why the system is simultaneously secure, scalable, Right. And decentralized. Yeah, because ex post, it's already been broadcast. There's no way to revert. Yes. And this is the power of true randomness. Yes, that is really the power. And um, is, uh, is uh, randomness is, uh, is a tremendous power, by the way. And uh, intuitively, we know that um, uh, security and randomness uh, is uh, the... the, the they got together. Uh, because in any game, say poker and things, right? So sometimes you have to use a randomized strategy if you want to protect yourself. Because if everybody knows that uh, uh, whenever uh, uh, I have three aces, I do the same thing. I discard the other two cards. I, I never discard two cards. So I, you, need, you need to have uh, inject some some randomness, because randomness has the following fundamental property. The best way to prevent that people can predict what I'm going to do is to ensure that I myself don't know what I'm going to do. Why? Because I'm going to base my behavior on some random element. That's why intuitively any poker player, any, any player knows that randomness is, uh, is part of the scheme. You, uh, you you see a scheme in in football, right? The players are going always in random places, a random play every time, because if they do the same thing, they become very predictable. So randomness is always been with us, and uh, 
it becomes a little bit more pronounced now in this uh, blockchain uh, business, uh, uh, particularly the way Algorand goes about it, because it is really used to, to the yield. Yeah. I know we've kept you longer than an hour, so I want to uh, wrap up soon as though we could, I could continue talking to you for hours. Ah, it's been a pleasure. I'm, <laughs> I'm game, but uh, I understand that, you know, everybody in your audience also have things to do, yes. <laughs> no, you're a busy guy. We have uh, all the time you need. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about uh, one final property or series of properties about Algorand, which is the way uh, the auctions work, the Dutch auctions, some of the financial characteristics and the bonding aspect of could you touch on that briefly? Oh, yeah. So I really believe uh, in, in blockchain. And uh, by the way, in the way we do it in Algorand, um, uh, it, it really matches this very well. So I believe that any auction should be conducted on a blockchain, tell you the truth, provided the blockchain is scalable. Why? Because uh, it's the best guarantee that if you do procurement, right? So you are a contractor. <laughs> do you feel I've been sidelined? Some of this, my bid was not taken consideration. If everybody bids on the blockchain, then you see that your bid appears and know that the blockchain is decentralized. Nobody can prevent your bid to be posted on the blockchain. Mm. That's why I don't like 21 people in charge of anything. You want to have a totally distributed system. So my bid is going to be posted no matter what. And I see my bid and the bid of all others. So therefore, with great transparency, Everybody can figure out who won and who lost and be a piece. And, and how much the people who won had to pay for what they got. Right? So that is a very quintessential thing. One advantage that Algorand has, so in general, if you, if you could do this in a blockchain, is good. What do you want? You want to decentralization, which maps into no bids can be censored from entering posted. You want to have the scalability. You want to allow millions of people from all over the planet to participate. You want security. But I tell you, you also want other things. So in, in, um, in uh, many times, the smart contracts that encodes these auctions can be very expensive. And uh, it can actually be very fragile, too, uh, as you know. And... Um, in Algorand, we have elaborated a bunch of uh, so-called the layer one smart contracts, which are very special contracts that satisfy 80%, say, of our needs for smart contracts. And we can do them at layer one, which is the most secure layer in any network, without writing ourselves new code, and essentially without slowing block production. In Algorand, you can run 1,000 layer one smart contract a layer one in one second. So that is pretty impressive. And what can you do on layer one? You can run an auction. You can do an atomic swap. So in other words, right. you have something that I want, an asset that I want. I have an asset that you want, and we want to exchange it by a layer one smart contract, essentially simultaneously, without being chaperoned by anybody, and without writing an ad hoc smart contract by asking anybody to write anything for us. And uh, in a few seconds, and at the price of one milli algo, we can swap with uh, certainty things. 
what else can we do? We can do very compl complicated, dependent, uh, correlated uh, payments. For instance, I should pay a thousand dollars to you, and if you paid um, uh, 30 algos to her, if she pays, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All this has to be dependent. Well, who should go first? Should I pay first? Well, no, because who knows if you are going to follow through and vice versa. And so in, in Algorand allows you, in a few seconds, in one milli-algo price, to push the button knowing that if everybody else complies, all payments are done. And if the others don't comply, my money never leaves, de facto, my wallet. Okay, so I am very, very much um, securing that too. You can do collateralized loans in layer one in Algorand. So I can, uh, I, um, I want to um, uh, borrow money from you and I post a collateral. And uh, if I don't pay them, whatever we agree monthly, you can repossess the collateral right away. Now that sounds bad, repossessing the collateral. Actually, that actually is good to, to be able to surrender the collateral in, in, when I don't pay very easily. Why? Because if I start resisting eh, and yet to go to court to get my collateral, but it can take you know months of debate. Meanwhile, my collateral loses value. Think about it as a, a cargo of wheat if I'm a farmer. And you know, you know, a month later is rotten. You know, uh, you can repossess your collateral. But <laughs> as junk is yours now, proudly. So what happens in a system like this? In a system like this, what happens is that the people who lend lend at a very high interest rates. Because they know that there is a much a lot of risk. But if you know that you can repossess the collateral in seconds at, automatically, wow, then you can afford to lend at much lower rate because your risk is way low. And guess what? If your rate is lower, the probability that I'm going to default is also lower. Everybody benefits, right? And so that's why we believe in Algorand, one of the advantages of, of, of our blockchain and doing things so cheaply, so efficiently, and we can be so cheap because we are so efficient, is going to enable growth and prosperity for all. Because that, I think it is, uh, um, the blockchain is going to be a, a big ally. Because even if you take you know, um, uh, a developing country, the main problem uh, they have is access to capital. But if you if you have access to capital, you will develop, right? So that is the idea. And so we, we think we can do these things in Algorand. And one particular thing that we do uh, very well and very efficiently in Algorand is uh, somehow tokenization, which essentially is a tremendous uh, tool for liquidity. I really believe that you know, uh, uh, tokenization means that I have... Uh, uh, an office building, say, mm -hmm. I build it, or rather, you build it, you want to sell it. Uh, in, it costs $100 million to build it. To whom you sell it? Well, nowadays you sell it to a few local billionaires who specialize in, in real estate. And by the way, there are so few that essentially they make the price, right? More or less. If you instead you tokenize it, you break it up in, let's say, a million uh, units, then you allow me from Boston, right, to put a thousand dollars and buy a small piece of your building. 
So I have a great opportunity to participate directly into such an offering, but otherwise I have no chance before. And you are ecstatic because finally, by having such a broad base of buyers, you are sure to, to essentially realize the value you deserve, right? For, for what, what you built. And so this, I believe, tokenization is, uh, and, and tokens really be, will, in my opinion, become the new vehicles of choice for asset management. And we already see that before we had mutual funds, right? And then we had you know, ETFs. And now, in my opinion, we are going to have uh, tokens. And so somehow to launch a new tokens in Algorand, you do it on layer one in a few seconds at the cost of a milli-algo, and you are required to keep a balance in whatever uh, wallet, new new wallet you create of a tenth of an algo. That is amazingly cheap, I must say, and uh, it's going to generate a lot of value. And it is no chance that uh, a few days ago, CI, which is the Italian Society of Authors and Editors, has posted an algorithm, 4.5 million NFTs, non-fungible tokens, mm. that they created, representing digital rights of 100,000 Italian artists. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you do this in, a, in another chain to, to create this uh, non-fungible token, it may cost you $100. So this exercise might have costed half a billion dollars, which is uh, some serious uh, chunk of money. And, um, and, and to do it also without writing any additional software, without hiring somebody to write for you a smart contract. That is actually, I think, you know, a very uh, big advantage because essentially in, in algorithm is as simple as um, somehow filling in a form. Who is the issuer? How many units you want to generate ever? How many units you are generating now? Who has clawback rights? Something bad happens, et cetera, et cetera. You fill the form, a few seconds, one million, and you're done. And I think that I am a very big believer in tokenization, and that is going to be actually create a very uh, liquidity and very often uh, that is going to be a problem in the market with uh, a blockchain and we in particular are very capable of addressing uh, uh, effectively. Yeah, you know, we talk about tokenization, NFTs, the expanding of use cases. One point that we haven't really formally touched on yet is evolvability. Well, Ash, you are right because best things last if you're about to finish. Because let me tell you, evolvability to me is the most important aspect of anything in life. Because life itself is about the evolvability. Things that do not evolve, let's put it this way, die very soon. They don't last long. I mean, we have the world around us changes and, uh, and the protocol, the blockchain protocol, ought to be able to evolve. Not every blockchain agrees, but because they often believe that somehow get pride that whatever the, the protocol is now is the same protocol that you'll see tomorrow, in a year, in 10 years, in 100 years. You know, I really believe that the uh, ability to change, if you don't bake it in in the protocol from the very beginning, is very hard to put in 
later. And I believe that evolvability in a consensual way is actually critical to address the needs of our community, not only today, but also tomorrow and beyond. Life is about uh, evolvability. And uh, an an algorithm has been designed so to evolve. And in fact, actually, we launched in uh, in June 2019 to showcase our solution of a trilemma to be decentralized, scalable, and things we produce, you know, more than 9 million blocks. So we have uh, um, um, 10 million users. Um, but whatever we started with was then enriched by this layer one smart contracts. We had every six months a very substantial and consensual absorption of new technology into our blockchain. And I believe that that is the recipe for longevity. So otherwise, we slowly, whatever the enterprise is, becomes essentially the equivalent of a dinosaur. And uh, then our environment changes enough that the dinosaurs' uh, uh, bones uh, litter uh, all the way. So we want to, uh, if we want to remain uh, relevant, if we want to remain uh, useful, we are to evolve. Fascinating. Finally, I have to ask you, we were talking a little bit off camera uh, about Sicily. Uh, You, of course, are Sicilian. Uh, This is the birthplace of Archimedes. I have Sicilian heritage as well. Tell us a little bit about how being Sicilian has influenced your view of cryptography. Well, you know, it has influenced me way beyond uh, cryptography, but we're also in cryptography. So first of all, let's explain. So in, in, in Sicily, let's see, we have seen uh, many civilization, right, you know, um, uh, succeeding. Um, 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 the Greeks, uh, the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, um, um, the Romans, uh, the Arabs, uh, the Normans, uh, the French, uh, the Spanish. And, uh, and so on. Uh, um, we, have, we have seen a lot. And each of, of, uh, of them left language, uh, culture, and art. Uh, we have a Greek temple, so we have um, uh, Arab Norman cathedrals, which is a fantastic style unique to Sicily because of these two civilizations were just next to each, each other. As has been, you know, so you ought to believe that uh, we are a soup, which isn't a large soup, is an international effort. And, you know, uh, Sicily is the center of the Mediterranean, so close to many civilization is natural, but it's really uh, seeing that happens. And, 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 and another thing that influences me is that, you know, I noticed that I, I was leaving uh, uh, when traveling wasn't easy. And I, uh, I was born in Palermo, but I lived you know, in Agrigento for a few years, which is the home of some fantastic Greek temples. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Even, uh, I don't want to say better than Greece, it sounds bad, but I'm saying some of the best Greek temples ever, you can find them uh, in uh, Agrigento, which was originally Akragas, a very old city. And I saw, you know, travelers from all over the world that line up to see the temples. So it really gave me the idea, say, hey, gee, if in our lives we do something so beautiful, people will continue to appreciate thousands of years later. And that is something really that, uh, that stuck with me. But of course, any time that you, know, you have, uh, you have you know, so many uh, civilizations 
initially there is the part of conquest is actually not exactly friendly. So, so, so there is a, a natural um, a thing to say, I better, you never find a better friend than a Sicilian friend, but you find, you know, a kind of caution attitude to, to begin with. And to say the better thing is that I don't reveal myself uh, right away. Right, and then only later uh, uh, you actually open up, and uh, that to me in the the world of um, of cryptography, um, uh, speaking about privacy or um, uh, helping to create a sense of privacy to a Sicilian comes uh, natural. But the goal of this uh, ability to keep private what we want to keep private, and to still be able to interact, is really expanding our ability to interact in my opinion. So security is a way to interact more, not less. And, uh, and, that, uh, and, um, and, and that is my Sicilian lesson. He has never left me. And every time that I go to Italy, I really uh, treasure my, uh, my time that I spend on the island. Marvelous. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Very welcome, Asha. And uh, thanks to you. And thank you to your audience for the uh, kind of <laughs> opportunity. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for watching, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to Real Vision Crypto. For more great crypto content like this, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.